I can't think of a better theme for us to have for this year's Truth in Life than our focus on the five solas and what an appropriate year with this being the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the front door of the church there in Wittenberg. So our entire focus in this conference is really we're majoring on majors. This is critically important, what we're talking about, because it involves the essence of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to thank Dr. MacArthur and the others who are a part of this conference for the invitation to, to be here, and this is a very special place for me to, to be for many reasons. First and foremost is because of this school's commitment to the truth of the inerrant and inspired and infallible Word of God. Second, I've had four children who have attended school here and who have graduated from the Master's University, and so I'm very proud of my association with the school here and that my own children are the product of your teaching and all that this school represents and every day of their life, they carry that influence with them of what they received here. And I'm so deeply thankful as they continue to walk with the Lord that this school actually fed them the Word of God and nurtured and encouraged them to walk with the Lord. So I give praise to God for this school. The wonderful assignment that has been given to me is the privilege to speak on faith alone out of the four solas, and if you would think of the four, the, or excuse me, the five solas, if you would think of it this way, of a mighty temple, the foundation is sola scriptura. Everything rests upon sola scriptura. It's the foundation that upholds the entire edifice of truth and the gospel. And three massive pillars rest upon this firm foundation, and these three pillars are the most succinct statement of what is absolutely non-negotiable for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these three pillars, pillars are that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the most minimalistic assertion of the gospel that you could, could have. Sola fide, sola gratia, solas Christos. And when these three pillars are firmly in place, resting upon sola scriptura, the authority of Scripture, then the pinnacle over the top of the temple points upward to God. Sola Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. If there is a crack in any of these three pillars, or if there is a crack in the foundation, the entire edifice comes crashing down, and it robs God of His glory. And that was Calvin's very point of attack against the Roman Catholic Church. I'll talk about it tomorrow night. In upholding these solas was to uphold and to promote the glory of God. And any attack against any of these five solas is a frontal assault on the glory of God. And so our conference is focusing upon these five solas. If you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. I want to begin reading in verse 6. My text today will be drawn from the book of Galatians, and I will be referencing Martin Luther. Galatians was Luther's favorite book. Luther said he was married to the book of Galatians, not Romans, Galatians. And Luther called the book of Galatians his Katie von Bora, which was the name of his wife. He, he considered the book of Galatians to be, as it were, his, his spouse, his wife, because this book was so beloved by Luther. And he was a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. The first book that he taught was Psalms. The second book he taught was Romans. The third book that he taught was Galatians, and Luther was converted while teaching the book of Galatians. He nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in 1517 as an unconverted man. 
He was not yet saved. He would not be converted until two years later in 1519 in the midst of teaching the book of Galatians. And as he had his tower experience there in the tower of the Castle Church in Wittenberg is when God pulled back the veil from his eyes and he saw the truth of what is in reality these solas. But as I read the book of Galatians, this particular text, this was at the very epicenter of the heart and the soul of Martin Luther as he entered into the kingdom of heaven. Romans 1 verse 17 would be the converting text, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But it was in the larger context of teaching in the classroom, verse by verse, through the book of Galatians, that he was literally launched into the kingdom of heaven. So today, as I speak on faith alone, I think it begs for us to come to the book of Galatians, and I want to read verses 6 through 14, depending upon the time that we have this morning. Beginning in verse 6, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 7, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel. Please note who preached the gospel. It was God Himself who preached the gospel to Abraham. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It was God Himself who preached the gospel in the garden to Adam and Eve. It is God who preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and now he quotes from Genesis 12, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Not the worker, but the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God, is evident for, and he now quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith, meaning you can't mix law and faith. You're going to choose one of the two systems by which you would seek to find acceptance with God. The law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written. And the reason Paul refers to the Old Testament here is one, because of the authority of the Old Testament, but two, so that we in New Testament times would be reminded this is not a new way of salvation that is being set forth. We can go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. There's only been one way of salvation from cover to cover in the Bible, and it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No one has ever been saved in the history of the world going all the way back to Adam until the last is saved at the end of the age other than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period, paragraph. And so Paul is referencing the Old Testament to document and underscore that his message is not a theological novelty. This is not uh, a new message, uh, a trendy message to appear now in the last days. This gospel message is as old as the earth is. And in Genesis 15, as we will discover, verse 6, it reads, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. 
just the same way that you and I are converted. There's not an Old Testament way to be saved and then a New Testament way to be saved. There's not a way for a Jew to be saved and then there is a different way for a Gentile to be saved. There is only one way of salvation. And we're not just dogmatic about this, we're bulldogmatic about this. And everyone else is going to hell and burn forever in the torment of the damned. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God are those who are part of the vast multitude who will find themselves before the throne of God in eternal bliss forever and ever. So this is not a peripheral issue. This is a primary issue. This is not secondary. This is at the very heartbeat of what it is to be a true believer. So, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here we have faith alone. So, fide, which is really a code phrase for justification by faith alone. It was on October 31st, 1571, that an obscure Augustinian monk, who became the professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, posted his 95 theses to the front door of the castle church. It would be these 95 theses that set off a theological firestorm as Luther was inviting a public debate that there would be a disputation regarding how it is that a man would be right with God. Luther had not yet come to that realization himself, though he was in turmoil under the guilt of sin. Earlier as a monk, Luther said, when I was a monk, I wearied myself for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, torturing myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works, close quote. Uh, Luther almost killed himself as he attempted to so give himself to works in order to achieve a right standing before God. He even would sleep outside in the, in the frigid cold just to buffet his own body and, and beat him up as if somehow God would be satisfied with him if he would inflict punishment upon himself. Two years later, in 1519, Luther writes, I began interpreting the Psalms once again. And just a footnote here. It's been well said, Galatians gave Luther his theology, and it was Psalms that gave him his boldness to roar like a lion and stand against the world. What a combination! And so he said, I began interpreting the Psalms once again. That was the first book he ever taught as a professor of Bible, and the first book that he ever had printed was his teaching on the imprecatory Psalms. He said, I felt confident that I was now more experienced, meaning as an interpreter, since I had dealt in university courses with Paul's letter to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the letter to the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans, but thus far there stood one word in my way, the word righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed in it, Romans 1.17. Luther said, I hated that word righteousness. Which, had been, which I had been taught to understand as referring to a 
an active righteousness, meaning he would be active in order to achieve righteousness before God. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God, I was a sinner with a terribly troubled conscience. I could not be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction, meaning no matter how much I beat myself up, no matter how much I I tried to keep the law, I knew in my heart I could not satisfy the righteous demands of God. Luther said, I did not love God, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently, and I was angry with God. Why? Because he can't meet the standard. I said, is it not enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God keep heaping sorrow upon sorrow and guilt upon guilt and threatening us with His wrath when we cannot meet the standard? I said, I meditated day and night on these words. Until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. The righteous man lives by faith. Luther writes, I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous man lives by a gift of God. That is, by faith. In other words, God must grant to him faith in order to lay hold of Christ and receive His righteousness. Luther said, I began to understand that this verse means that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive righteousness, meaning the sinner does nothing to acquire this righteousness other than put faith in Christ. The light bulbs are coming on inside of Luther's mind. That by which the merciful God justifies us by faith alone. As it is written, the righteous man lives by faith. All at once, Luther says, I felt as if I was born again and that the gates of paradise were swung open to me. Immediately, I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I ran through the Scriptures from memory and found that other terms had analogous meanings. The work of God is that work which God does in us. The power of God is that power which He gives to us. The wisdom of God is that He makes us wise. The strength of God is the strength He gives to us. The righteousness of God is that righteousness by which He gives to us. It's not a reward for the righteous, it's a gift for the guilty. And it is received by faith. And as Luther came to this epiphany, as he came to this spiritual breakthrough moment, which was his conversion... Luther said that this doctrine, justification by faith alone, it is appointed for the standing or falling of the church, close quote. In other words, every true church will preach this, and if this is not preached, it is an apostate church. Uh, Luther went on to say, when the article of justification by faith alone has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article by which all other doctrines have flowed. In other words, if you're right here, you're going to be right 30 other places in theology. And if you're wrong with justification by faith alone, you are wrong in 50 other places. He says this doctrine alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God, and without justification by faith alone, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. That's no hyperbole. That is literally true. 
And Luther went on to maintain that this doctrine, justification by faith, listen to this, is the master, the prince, the lord, the ruler, and the judge over all other kinds of doctrines. The scepter in the hand of justification by faith alone governs our understanding of the very gospel itself. So what did Luther discover in this text? Well, in the time that remains, I want to set five headings before you, and I I don't know if we'll have time to get to all five. But I want you to note first in verse 6 the meaning of justification. The meaning of justification. In verse 6, we very clearly read, which is, A direct quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, now note this, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, meaning he had no righteousness, and righteousness had to be given to him, and there is only one who has a perfect righteousness, by which it can be given to us, and it must be reckoned to us. The analogy, the metaphor here is that of a courtroom. But in the Scripture, just to open the lens up for a moment, there are three different analogies that the Bible uses for how this righteousness is given to us. There's a banking metaphor There's a clothing metaphor, and there is this courtroom metaphor. All three teach the same truth. In the banking metaphor, we stand before God as as guilty sinners who are spiritually bankrupt, who have no spiritual capital by which we may pay off the wages of our sin, which is death. In my hands, no price I bring. But it's worse than having nothing We are in debt to God because of our sin. And because of the the riches of the mercy that are in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we commit our life to Jesus Christ, all of the riches that are in Christ Jesus are deposited into our account. And we who were spiritual paupers, we who were spiritually bankrupt, we who had nothing by which to enter into a transaction with God to receive salvation, the riches of Christ, sinless life and substitutionary death, are deposited into our account. And we who were paupers immediately became princes. The other metaphor is a clothing metaphor, that we stand before God naked, our our, our sin fully exposed before God, dressed only in the rags of our own self-righteousness. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, our rags of self-righteousness are, are stripped from us and, and removed from us, and the perfect righteousness of Christ clothes us. And all of our sin is under the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we once who were naked standing before God now are under the perfect righteousness of Christ. But it is the third metaphor that is used here, and it is the predominant metaphor that is used in Scripture. It is that of the courtroom. That we stand before the judge of heaven and earth. We are weighed in the balances and found wanting. And there is the due punishment for our violation of the law. And we are subject to the curse of the law. We are tried and and found guilty and condemned and sentenced to to an eternal judgment under God. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ, His sinless life, who has obeyed the law at every point where you and I have disobeyed the law, it is His perfect active obedience to the law of God that is secured by the sinless life of Christ, and it is, it, is, it is imputed to us as though we have lived sinlessly under the law. 
And it is the sinless life of Christ that is a key component in this righteousness coming to us. Otherwise, salvation could have occurred in a weekend. Jesus could have left heaven and just gone straight to the cross on Friday, been buried, raised on Sunday, and go back to glory, and it could have been a three-day saving enterprise. It was absolutely necessary, Galatians 4.4, that He be born under the law, that He would keep the very law that you and I have broken. Not only did He die in our place, He lived in our place. And He met the demands of the law perfectly, so that now, as you and I commit our life to Christ, it's His perfect righteousness of keeping that law, that's what's imputed to us. God doesn't just create it out of thin air. It was an actual, active righteousness, which therefore also qualified Him to go to the cross to complete perfect righteousness. It's all one righteousness. And so when we believe upon Jesus Christ, God, the moral judge of heaven and earth, brings the gavel down and declares us forensically to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've done nothing other than contribute the sin that is laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And it is this perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that the Father takes and declares us to be righteous. That is what this word reckon means. In the ESV, it is translated counted. In the Holman and the NIV, it is translated credited And in the New King James and the Old King James, it is translated accounted. Whichever one of these words communicates to you the best, it is a legal transaction, a legal declaration by God of the righteousness of Christ. And I want to tell you about this this declaration by God. First of all, It's a divine act, number one. It's a divine act. We can't justify ourselves. The church cannot justify us. The pastor or the evangelist cannot justify us. There's only one who can justify us, and it is God. And that is why later in Romans 8, if God justifies us, who is He who condemns? All that matters is the the declaration of God. Second, it's an immediate act. It takes place in a moment. The moment you commit your life to Jesus Christ, suddenly, quickly, in the twinkling of an eye, this transaction occurs. It's not a process like the Christian life. It's a point in time on the linear lines of your life. You walk into church unrighteous. You walk out righteous if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Third, it's a forensic act, meaning... It does not describe an inner moral change of your character. That is sanctification. And there is a positional sanctification that takes place immediately at this time that begins progressive sanctification. But this is forensic. Fourth, it's a just act, meaning it is on the basis of the perfect righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. Again, it's not a righteousness that's just pulled out of thin air and deposited into our account. It is a real, actual righteousness that Jesus Christ alone has acquired for us. Fifth, it's an irrevocable act. Once justified, always justified. Never to be reversed, never to be repealed, never to be rescinded. Six, it's a comprehensive act, meaning everyone who is justified is as fully justified as one can be. And no one believer is any more justified than another believer. The chief of sinners is just as justified as the one who grew up in a moralistic home but has never come to faith in Christ, and when that one commits his or her life to Christ, 
that one is just as justified as even the worst sinner in town. And then seventh, it's an accompanied act, meaning justification is always accompanied by sanctification that leads to glorification. Justification is never alone. Justification is is never by itself. Faith is alone, but this righteousness and justification is never alone. It always leads to a changed life. In this same year, 1519, in which Luther came to the saving knowledge of Christ, once converted, he preached one of his most famous sermons, the title of which is Two Kinds of Righteousness. And Luther is just bursting at the seams to preach the truth now of this one saving gospel. And in this sermon, Two Kinds of Righteousness... He speaks of an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, meaning it's outside of ourselves, meaning it's come from another realm. It's come from from far away. It's come from Christ. It's alien. It's foreign. It's outside of us. It is this righteousness that is given to us. It doesn't arise up from within us. It comes down from above and is granted to us. The other kind of righteousness is the practical righteousness, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of godliness that the alien righteousness always will then lead to, the fruit of righteousness. And so Luther spoke, quote, of an alien righteousness, that is the righteousness of another instilled from without, Extra nos in the Latin, from, from without, outside of us, the righteousness of Christ. So this is the meaning of justification. We who stood condemned, rightly so, before the judgment far of God, having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, rebels against the law of God, under the wrath of Almighty God, unable to meet the divine standard by which God measures each and every one of us because of the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. That perfect righteousness of Christ is declared, reckoned, imputed, credited, charged immediately to our account. I have to ask you, has this transaction ever occurred in heaven regarding your life? Have you ever come to God and said, God... My, my own righteousness is as filthy rags in your sight. Have you ever come to God like the leper who would cry out, unclean, unclean? He'd cry out, unclean to God, and call out for the perfect righteousness to clothe you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, to be deposited into your account as though you yourself have earned it, but in reality have only received it as a gift. And has the judge of heaven and earth ever brought the gavel down and sovereignly, divinely declared you to be in right standing before God. But let me just tell you this. You need more than forgiveness. All forgiveness does is bring you back to zero. Zeros don't go to heaven. You need a positive righteousness to get into heaven. All forgiveness does is basically bring you back to Adam. 
You must have a positive righteousness clothe you, be credited to you, be imputed to you in order to be received by God in heaven, and the forgiveness of sin is not enough. That is simply the removal of the negative. You need the acquisition of the positive. The true gospel is far more than washing away. The true gospel adds to that the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not either or, it's both and. There's a negative removal and a positive acquisition. Now, second, I want you to note the means. What is the means by which this righteousness comes to me? And in verse 6, in running through this passage, it is so abundantly clear that a blind man could see this. You would have to be in a dark room with your eyes closed and your Bible closed and upside down not to see this. The beginning of verse 6, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It is a bare faith in Jesus Christ, not faith and anything else. And this was the rub in the Reformation. It's more than a rub. This was the controversy in the Reformation. The Reformers said it is by faith alone. Rome said it is by faith and the Reformers said sola, Rome said et. Faith and baptism, faith and church membership, faith and the Virgin Mary, faith and indulgences, faith and the treasury of merit, faith and relics, faith and pilgrimages, faith and last rites, faith and, 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 and. There's no end to it. And the Reformers just cut through the, through the malay and got to the bottom line of the Bible. It is faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. That is what Paul is affirming here. And you and I need to hear this here today. It's not faith and growing up in a Christian home. It's not faith and attending a Christian school. It's not faith and reading Christian books. It is not faith and having Christian friends. It is not faith and going to a Christian Bible study. It is faith alone. And if you will exercise faith alone, He may well lead you to a Christian school, and He will lead you to a Christian Bible study, and He will lead you to those things. But that is the fruit, not the entrance into it is faith alone. Please note it says Abraham believed God. It's not enough just to have faith. Your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. Faith in yourself is worthless. Faith in, in religion is worthless. Faith in anything other than God is absolutely worthless. Hell is full of people with faith. Some of the greatest faith in the Bible came from demons. James 2 says they believe God and tremble in fear. Jesus said there will be those who would say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many wondrous works in your name? And I will say unto them in that day, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. It has to be faith in the revealed will of God as it is contained in the gospel of God. And so even verse 6 alludes to this. Even so, Abraham believed God. He believed in the revealed word of God. And saving faith is decisive, it is wholehearted, it is conclusive, it is determinative, it is definite. There is... 
the knowledge of the truth in the mind. There is the persuasion of the truth in the heart. There is the action of the will to commit one's life to Christ. And he continues to underscore this in verse 7. Be sure. In other words, there's no room for uncertainty or doubt about this. No ambiguity. Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's of those who are of faith and nothing else added. Look at verse 8. God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Look at verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Verse 11, the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 12, the law is not of faith. Verse 14, we who would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Luther understood this, just like you and I must understand this. Luther, in his class lectures on Galatians, as he came to this very text, Luther said to his theological students, Paul places the emphasis upon two words, Abraham believed. And Luther went on to say, faith in God constitutes the highest worship, the prime duty, the first obedience, the foremost sacrifice. Without faith, God forfeits His glory. Wisdom, truth, and mercy in us. In other words, we have nothing if we do not have faith in God. Everything is lost. The first duty of man, Luther says, is to believe in God. That's number one. And to honor Him with faith. Faith is truly the highest of wisdom, the right kind of righteousness, and the only real religion. To believe in God is to be right with God. Luther summarizes, faith honors God, and God honors faith. Luther went on to say, faith cannot be inherited or gained by being baptized into a church. Faith is a matter between the individual and God. Uh, God has many children in the kingdom, but He has no grandchildren. We must come individually for ourselves to God by faith. Luther went on to say, faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. It enters into an intimate relationship with Christ. Luther said, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. It is so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. He said, the only saving faith is that which casts itself on God for life or death. Faith lays hold of Christ. It's aggressive. It's active. Faith lays hold of Christ and grasps Him as a present possession just as a ring holds a jewel. This is the means of justification. And there is no other means other than faith alone. If you trust in faith and anything else, you have not exercised faith in Christ. If you have one foot in Christ and one other foot in the baptistry, you have not come all the way to faith in Jesus Christ until both feet are fully and firmly planted upon the solid ground of Jesus Christ. I, I wish I had the time to develop the rest of this. But I'll just give you the flyover. The extent of justification is in verses 8 and 9. That God would justify the Gentiles. The extent is to the ends of the earth. There is no other door leading into heaven. There is no other access into the kingdom of heaven. And no matter what nation a person may be a part of, wherever a Gentile is found, it is only by entering by faith in Jesus Christ to receive this righteousness 
This is why we're involved in missions. This is why we go to the ends of the earth. This is why we leave the comforts of America and, and go to hard places because people are, are dying without Christ and they're descending down into the, the pit that is never quenched. And we must reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and not tomorrow, today. And then finally, or next to last, I want you to see the enemy of justification, verses 10 through 12. The enemy of justification is any confidence or any reliance in my human works to give me a right standing before God. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. There's no exception to this, as many as. And to be under the curse is to be under the wrath of God and to be under the condemnation of God, to be under the divine judgment of God, to bring about the sentence, the death sentence forever in a real place called hell. That's to be under the curse of God. And so Paul leaves no wiggle room in what he is saying. This is the enemy of justification. It's, it's any preaching of works to contribute to receiving this righteousness. And then he says, for it is written, cursed is everyone. That covers the field. Who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, if you're going to try to work your way into heaven, I've got news for you. It's going to require 100% perfect. And then you're going to have to do something with original sin that's already been imputed to you. And then in verse, in verse 13 and 14, and I conclude the matter of justification. What, what is the ground of justification? And the very essence of what is imputed to us is the result of the life and death of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us, ex agarazzo. He, he bought us out of our bondage and slavery to sin and to Satan. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, and the way that He did it, He goes on to say, having become a curse for us. God didn't just take the curse that was upon us and just slip it under the, the rug and pretend like it was no longer there. He took the curse that was due to fall heavy upon us and He placed it upon Christ. And when Jesus bore our sins, He became our wrath absorber upon the cross. His physical death was nothing compared to this spiritual reality of suffering the curse of God, the judgment of God, the, the damnation of the torment of souls in hell forever fell upon Christ upon the cross. In 1 Peter 2, 24, He bore our sins in His body upon the cross. And in becoming our sin, He then suffered in our place and bore the curse, the penal sanctions of breaking the law fell upon him. Far more than physical suffering. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Luther said, Paul does not say that Christ was made a curse for himself. The accent is on two words, for us. Christ is, a, is personally innocent. Luther said, Christ took the place of others who were sinners. He was like any other transgressor in that He stood in our place. And Luther asked his students, who were these sinners? And Luther answered, we are. The sentence of death and everlasting damnation, Luther said, had long been pronounced over us, but Christ took all our sins and died for them upon the cross. Why? Verse 14, in order that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham, and the reference here is this righteousness, this positive righteousness that would be reckoned to us, might come to the Gentiles. 
and specifically the seed of Abraham who would ultimately be Christ, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. Well, I must conclude, but I I must ask you this. Do you know Christ? Have you committed your life to Christ? Have you ever seen how foul are the wounds of your sin and how useless are your own rags of self-righteousness by which you would try to cover over the wickedness and the corruption and the depravity of your life? Have you ever seen the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? Have you ever beheld in pages of Scripture His, His perfect life, His sinless life, achieving and securing a perfect righteousness for us to be given to us as though we have lived the life that He lived? Have you ever seen Christ lifted up upon the cross, dying in the place of guilty, hell-bound sinners? And purchasing and securing the eternal salvation and deliverance from sin for all who will call upon His name. Have you ever personally believed upon Jesus Christ? Not just with your head, and not just in your heart, but with the act of your will. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Boast not yourself in tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. And if God is opening your eyes to see that you are unclean before a holy God, flee to Christ, run to Christ by faith. He loves to receive sinners. He's come not for the righteous, He's come for the unrighteous. He's a physician who's come not for those who are well, He's come for those who are sick. Just tell Him how how sick you are. And He loves to gather in sick sinners and clothe them with His perfect righteousness. And He'll lift you up to the heights of heaven and you'll be a trophy of His grace. And you'll begin a, a radically new life. And your guilty conscience will be salved And you will have peace with God, and you will enter into the peace of God. Faith alone. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this so great salvation that has been achieved by Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that for everyone here in this gym today, that there would be true faith by which we would commit our lives to Christ. May none leave here today outside of Christ. May all here today, by faith, be in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.